This Post Reports podcast is sponsored by Fidelity, financial planning that moves with your life. Learn more at fidelity.com slash your goals. Fidelity Brokerage Services, member NYSC SIPC. From the newsroom of The Washington Post. Hey, it's Ross Helderman from The Post calling. How are you? Hey there, it's Sungman from The Post. Uh, hey, it's Dave Farron from The Post. Let me get a second. This is Post Reports. I'm Nicole Ellis. It's Thursday, October 17th. Today, Mark Zuckerberg on Facebook's role policing speech. Representative Elijah Cummings dies at 68. And the future of Japan's dolphin hunt. In general, in a democracy, I think that people should be able to hear for themselves what politicians are saying. I also think that, in general, people should decide what they find credible and not tech companies. Just for fun. No, <laughs> I, I sat down with Mark Zuckerberg because he's in town this week for a speech that he's giving at Georgetown University about his vision for free speech and free expression in the digital age. Tony Rom is the Post's senior tech policy reporter. He got an interview this week with Facebook's founder, Mark Zuckerberg. Okay, his speech comes at a time when Zuckerberg's decisions are being called into question by critics. Now, Facebook has been under fire for the way that it handles its platform for a long time now, Uh, the way that it addresses things like hate speech and terrorist propaganda and online misinformation. Zuckerberg has been under pressure to take more action against that content. It takes down some of that stuff. But on the flip side, uh, Zuckerberg has been under pressure to ensure that Facebook is still the free flow, the free exchange that has made the site what it's become today, used by more than 2 billion people around the world. I do think increasingly probably more people would care about having achieving the political outcomes they care about than making sure that everyone has a voice in the system. Everyone's really worried about whether this platform can stop the spread of bad stuff, including misinformation ahead of the 2020 election. There's a similar impulse from a lot of folks to pull back on expression. And I just think this is a moment where it's really important to stand up for this. So we saw this sort of begin to build earlier this year when Mark Zuckerberg wrote an op-ed for The Post, actually, outlining his vision for what the future of Internet regulation should look like. And there he called for more rules from government that kind of set the lay of the land as to what companies should leave up or what they should take down with respect to harmful content. And today builds on that further. He's just sort of expressing this view that even at moments when there are social and political tensions that might prompt people to want to cut back in free speech. The history of the U.S. is such that it's good to allow that expression. It's good to not put up those sorts of barriers that inhibit expression because people always tend to regret them. I just think that in a democracy, it is not right for private companies to censor politicians or the news. Facebook was criticized a lot for the Russian ads that ran during the 2016 election. How is the company trying to make up for that in 2020? And how is the presidential race going so far on Facebook? (laughs) Well, that depends on who you ask. So immediately after the 2016 election, Facebook was under immense fire in Washington for not having done enough to spot Russian interference and stop Russian interference. I mean, remember, Mark Zuckerberg pretty famously said that he didn't think the platform had been used in that way in the months before we learned that millions and millions of Americans saw this propaganda that had been secretly seeded by Russian agents. So in the time since then, as he's been under fire on Capitol Hill, they have hired more people, they've tightened 
tightened up their policies. They've invested in these artificial intelligence tools to try to spot fake accounts and take down those malicious actors who are seeking to spread social and political unrest online. We also have, have, have evolved a lot. Our AI systems for identifying fake accounts have improved. Um, our partnerships with the intelligence community and election commissions in a lot of countries have improved for data sharing. Um, there's more industry partnerships. So there, there are a lot of things that we've been able to do. But there's this growing belief that Facebook just hasn't found everything. Some of that is because of the fact that we are seeing evidence that other countries like Iran and China are beginning to use Facebook to spread misinformation. And some of it's just this lingering distrust on Capitol Hill that Facebook really has learned the lessons of 2016. But in talking to Mark when he and I sat down, you know, the message from him is that we will never solve this problem. You will always see governments trying to manipulate elections, trying to seed this kind of bad stuff on Facebook, but that their investments have put them in a place where they think they can do a better job than they ever have before. And they point to the fact that they've been successful in elections in places throughout Europe, for example. After 2016, we've had a role in helping to defend against interference in almost every major election around the world. Right? So starting with the French presidential election in 2017, German federal elections, there were Mexico, Brazil, India, the whole EU most recently. And in each of those, we saw the tactics that different nation state actors would use evolve and they get more sophisticated. So earlier this year, there was a fake video speaker of the House, Nancy Pelosi, that was circulated on Facebook, among other platforms. And flash forward to this month, what's the company doing to prevent things like that happening again? Right. So this is called a deep fake. It was a video of Nancy Pelosi that had been significantly altered. And in this case, uh, it was altered in a way that made her look drunk. And clearly, Speaker Pelosi was not drunk when she was speaking about politics. At the time, Speaker Pelosi's office had asked Facebook to take down that video. They said, this is a form of misinformation. This is bad content that misleads people about how the speaker acts, what the speaker views. Uh, and Facebook said no. It said that it was not its responsibility to be that arbiter of truth. Now, in the end, what happened is that they fact-checked the video and appended a notice to it saying that the video had been doctored. But by that point, it had been seen by millions on Facebook. Other social media companies took action, but Facebook stood by its decision to allow that content. So now here we are today, about to hear his speech that he's delivering at Georgetown. And the message that he gave to me was that the company realizes it has a problem with these so-called deep fakes. If anything becomes a big issue and we haven't already prepared for it, then that means that we were too slow in preparing for it. And I think figuring out which types of deep fakes are actually a threat today versus are a theoretical future threat once the technology advances is one of the things that, that we need to make sure we get right. She didn't detail what the policy exactly would be, but just imagine the threat here. If we had a situation in which somebody had totally doctored a video of President Trump threatening an attack on a foreign power, and that video went viral on a place like Facebook, that's not just a form of misinformation. That's a potentially deadly form of misinformation. So I think Facebook is beginning to grapple with the reality that deepfakes are a very serious upcoming threat and that potentially their policy hasn't kept a pace with that. What does he think government should be doing about deepfakes and ads and misinformation? Well, it sort of varies. 
for the most part, I don't think you'll hear any tech company on the planet say that they think the U.S. government should write rules for what should and shouldn't be allowed on the internet, right? Firstly, it's a violation of the First Amendment. That would never really make any sense. But second, they really don't think that the government should be deciding, uh, making content moderation decisions. But I think that he thinks there's some role the government can play in convening all these tech companies, because remember, this space includes Google and YouTube and Twitter in sort of setting benchmarks for what it considers to be success for information sharing so that they can take action more quickly to stop the spread of bad stuff online. It is very nebulous, though. Um, I think it's important to point that out. On specific things like ads, there is much more agreement that perhaps there needs to be more transparency around how ads are purchased, who funded them, exactly how they appear on a site like Facebook. The thing that they don't want, they absolutely don't want, is to be held liable for the things that their users post online. And we'd benefit from a more democratic process and clearer rules for the internet and, and some new institutions. At his Georgetown speech, Zuckerberg announced a new way for people to understand what gets taken down from Facebook. We're establishing an independent oversight board for people to appeal our content decisions. Tony Rom is the senior tech policy reporter for The Post. Good morning, everyone. Today is a very sad day for us as we all awaken to the sad news of the passing of our dear friend, revered and respected colleague, Congressman, Mr. Chairman, Elijah Cummings of Maryland, my, my brother in Baltimore. Representative Elijah Cummings, a Democratic leader and native son of Baltimore, has died. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi announced Thursday that flags at the Capitol would fly at half-staff. He was uh, in the Congress. Elijah was considered a North Star. He was a leader of towering character and integrity. He lived the American dream. He died at 68. According to his office, the cause was complications from long-standing health challenges. He just had a really excellent way of flying above the fray. Jenna Portnoy covers Maryland's congressional delegation for The Post. Every time I interviewed Chairman Cummings, you really did not feel like he was reading from talking points or espousing something that came from his staff minutes before. Certainly, he was, he was great to write about for that reason, but it, it took you out of the day-to-day of Capitol Hill for a little while, which was a, really a gift. Cummings was the chair for the House Oversight and Reform Committee, which is a pretty powerful committee. And over the last few years, he had become a forceful critic of President Trump's administration. But Jenna says his politics didn't define him. So Elijah Cummings is a kid from Baltimore. I represent a diverse district, a very diverse district. He grew up the grandson of sharecroppers. His parents were factory workers. They had seven children. We have people who have a lot of problems. We have people who have very nice homes. We have... We have people who are struggling just trying to make it. And it honors me tremendously to know that they would send me here to represent them. I've often said on the floor, And he grew up with a real sense of purpose. He integrated a local swimming pool at age 11, even though he faced attacks while that was happening. He was actually inspired by Perry Mason um, from the television series about a fictional defense attorney. Um, that really inspired him to join the legal profession. He once said that 
He knew Perry Mason won a lot of cases, and he thought the young men in his neighborhood would need somebody like that on their side. Um, After that, he joined the Maryland House of Delegates, where he was the first African-American speaker pro tem, which is sort of the person that presides in the speaker's absence. In the mid-90s, he won a seat in Congress. He rose up the ranks. He was chairman of the Congressional Black Caucus, and then he became chairman more recently of the House Oversight and Reform Committee. What was his reputation like in Congress? There are a lot of really powerful anecdotes and stories about how Chairman Cummings did his own thing with little regard for what most of the caucus perhaps thought was best. He was certainly an ally of Speaker Pelosi, but he voted his conscience. For example, he voted against the invasion of Iraq. At the time of the Iraq vote, many people were influenced, I would say, by the the Bush White House. Certainly history has proven that many people uh, regret that vote. But Chairman Cummings was part of a handful of people who, who saw from the beginning that the evidence was not there to support it. As soon as Trump took office, Representative Cummings became a really powerful and vocal critic of President Trump. Can you tell me a little bit about how that's panned out? Congressman Cummings, his spats with Trump got a lot of attention. As chairman of oversight, it was really his job to hold the administration accountable, and he took that very seriously. We sent letter after letter, letter after letter, asking these committees to investigate the Trump administration's policy. He opposed adding the citizenship's question to the census. He was very upset about the child separation policy. I believe he called them child internment camps. Which is now resulting in child internment camps. That's what I said, child internment camps. And he issued dozens of subpoenas, now part of this impeachment inquiry. People say, oh, you're just messing with the president because you don't like It's not about not liking the president. It's about loving democracy. It's about loving our country. It's about making a difference for generations yet unborn. That's what this is all about. The White House has said they will not cooperate with this, and that combativeness is something that he called worse than Watergate. We have got to guard this moment. This is our watch. Trump also had a lot of memorable criticisms of Baltimore. How did Cummings respond to that? So earlier this year, Trump tweeted an offensive diatribe against Baltimore, which is Cummings' hometown, the town where he still lives, the town that he considers, you know, that made him who he is. So Trump tweeted that Baltimore was a rat and rodent-infested mess, uh, among other things. You know, Cummings really stayed above the fray when it came to that and didn't give the attacks the dignity of a response. He stood up for Baltimore, certainly, but he gave a speech at the National Press Club. It was like his first major speech after those tweets. And I remember the room was packed. You know, it was a lunch. And normally he would attract a lot of attention, but there were tons of reporters in the gallery. And we were all on the edge of our seats waiting to see how he would address this attack on his city. You know, he got a standing ovation when he walked in. I think he was using a walker at the time, but he stood at the lectern and gave a speech. And he said, God has called me to this moment. I did not ask for it. But, you know, I'm here for it. We must also stop the hateful, incendiary comments. We got to do it. Those in highest levels of the government must stop invoking fear, using racist language, and encouraging reprehensible behavior. 
It only creates more division among us. Representative Cummings was clearly an incredibly important part of the national political stage. Can you tell me a little bit about what he meant to Baltimore? The city of Baltimore, you know, meant so much to him. And I think the experience really during and after the Freddie Gray riots shined a real light on Chairman Cummings' love for the city and, you know, responsibility he felt for the place. There was really an explosion of anger and sadness in Baltimore after the death of Freddie Gray. He was the 25-year-old young black man who was arrested for carrying a pocket knife, according to police. He died of injuries, suffered um, while riding in a, in a van. He spoke at Freddie Gregg's funeral, went to the riots, and, you know, wielded a bullhorn. He brought that bullhorn to the streets of Baltimore and, you know, tried to calm extremely high tensions. He understood the, the reasons for the violence, I think, but wanted to take a different path. We cannot cut off uh, these young people's futures. And when I talk to young people, what I hear from them is that we really simply want to have a chance. And he really showed people, you know, the sort of civil rights leader within him. And a young man told me the other day, he said, Mr. Cummings, he said, I feel like I'm in my coffin trying to claw my way out. He's really remembered for what he did as an advocate for Baltimore, as an advocate for young people. I've said it, I added this, out of this moment must come a movement. Maggie Penman, a producer for Post Reports, went up to Capitol Hill Thursday. She talked to congressional correspondent Paul Kane about the legacy Cummings leaves behind and what it means for the ongoing impeachment inquiry. So Representative Cummings was obviously the chair of the House Oversight Committee, which has a big role to play in the impeachment inquiry. Do we know what will happen now? So uh, members of Cummings Oversight Committee have already been uh, participating in these meetings that have been going on in the basement of uh, the Capitol Visitor Center, and they are asking questions. His staff has been working with the House Intelligence Committee, other committees to, to sort of get to the bottom of what happened with the Ukraine piece of this entire puzzle. What's not clear is who's going to become the next chairman of that committee, who will become the next leader, the, the, the face of this investigation, of the other investigations in particular. Adam Schiff has been the highest profile lead role in all of this. He's chairman of the Intelligence Committee. He will probably continue to sort of take the lead on this. But it's unclear who that next chair will be on the Oversight Committee because they have this piece of the impeachment investigation, but there are lots of other investigations that Mr. Cummings was leading. And it's an unknown right now as to whether the sort of next in line, one of the next most senior members could be D.C. Delegate Eleanor Holmes Norton, Carolyn Maloney from New York. But they might go outside of that. They might try to find somebody more junior or actually not even on the committee to bring them in to sort of take over what are really critical investigations into this Trump administration. I think a lot of people talking about Representative Cummings and his legacy have talked about his sort of um, moral authority. Mm -hmm. And I wonder if there's anyone who could succeed him who would have that sort of moral authority. Uh, it's really tricky. There is a generation of 
members of the Congressional Black Caucus who have lived lives that are really just uh, heroic in a way, whether it's John Lewis, who was part of the Martin Luther King civil rights movement, who was on the bridge in Selma, who was beaten by white police officers. Jim Clyburn is another of that generation. Mr. Cummings has a story, a life story of being the son of sharecroppers from the South who grew up in Baltimore at a time of really deep clashes of uh, racial integration. Those voices are just powerful. They have stories and biographies behind them that are are different, that just have a different level of moral clarity, moral authority. And I don't know who those next leaders will be. In some ways, some shape, some form, you're starting to see it come from a very young generation of uh, Democrats and Republicans who have served in the sort of never-ending Iraq-Afghanistan wars. Um, It's a different type of moral conscience that you're seeing, but they're people who have been on the battlefront of, 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 you know, life and death, and they sort of might be the people who step in to fill what is going to be a void over the next 10 years or so, as these other people who have lived such incredible lives and who therefore have such a, a moral high ground on which to stand as they retire and, you know, sadly, in the case of Mr. Cummings, uh, pass away. Paul Kane and Jenna Portnoy cover Congress for The Post. What's on your list of financial goals? Buying a new house? Strengthening your retirement plan? All of the above? Whatever you're saving for, Fidelity Personalized Planning and Advice can help you reach those goals with digital planning plus one-on-one personal coaching, all with low transparent pricing. To learn more, visit fidelity.com slash your goals or call 1-800-343-3548. Advisory services offered for a fee by Fidelity Personal and Workplace Advisors, LLC. And brokerage services provided by Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. And now, one more thing. In Japan, the annual dolphin hunt is underway. Simon Denier, the post-Tokyo bureau chief, brings us to the start of the hunting season. I went to Taiji, which is in the southeastern part of the main Japanese island of Honshu. It was the first town to have an organized whale hunt in 1606. It was the first town to use nets to catch larger whales in 1676. Taiji shot to global fame when it was the subject of an Oscar-winning documentary called The Cove, which is a very gruesome sort of grisly documentary about the dolphin hunt. And, and Taiji became infamous. It became a, a place where activists came to protest very vociferously. And it became seen by some people in the West as a symbol of... Uh, something barbaric which was happening in Japan. I went to the beginning of the hunting season, and this is about 10 years since the film The Cove came out. The foreign activists have largely disappeared. 
Partly because Japan's immigration authorities have thrown them out, that they've denied them entry to the country. But the protests haven't stopped because now there are Japanese animal rights activists protesting. And there are counter protests from Japanese right wing groups who feel that the hunt is part of Japanese culture and foreigners shouldn't be telling Japan what to do. Most of the dolphins, in terms of numbers, are still slaughtered for meat. But that's not where the fishermen are making their money. They're making their money by selling dolphins into captivity. Because a, a live dolphin, a live bottlenose dolphin, can fetch up to $10,000. And once it's been trained, a bottlenose dolphin can fetch $40,000. And they're selling these dolphins to aquariums, and at the moment, largely aquariums in China. We saw dolphins who'd been captured, who were kept in pens by the sea, quite small pens. They were kept there for up to a year while they were being trained before they get sold off to aquariums elsewhere. And there are other dolphins performing tricks at Taiji's dolphinarium. So there's daily shows where dolphins and small whales which have been captured are now performing tricks for fish, just as you'd see at a dolphinarium in the West. Taiji is very proud of its history of whaling. So Seto is a common surname in Taiji, and, and that refers to the harpooner in the whaling boat. These people don't want to give up a tradition which their ancestors have been carrying on for a very long time. For them, it's, it's important culturally and it's an important tradition, and it's important economically. Simon Denyer covers Japan and the Koreas for The Post. That's it for today's show. Thanks for listening. I'm Nicole Ellis. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. What's on your list of financial goals? Buying a new house? Strengthening your retirement plan? All of the above? Whatever you're saving for, Fidelity Personalized Planning and Advice can help you reach those goals with digital planning plus one-on-one personal coaching, all with low transparent pricing. To learn more, visit fidelity.com slash your goals or call 1-800-343-3548. Advisory services offered for a fee by Fidelity Personal and Workplace Advisors, LLC, and brokerage services provided by Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC.